<clears throat> Thank you for your patience, everyone. All right. This is no idea is too ridiculous, and here we go. Um, so the Heritage Philadelphia program, I want to tell you just a little bit about what my organization does to give you the context for why this was something we wanted to do. Um, and we are um, one of seven funding initiatives at the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. Um, our sister programs are um, uh, pro provide support in dance, music, theater, visual art, cultural management, and fellowships for individual artists. As a center, we represent a significant portion of the Pew Charitable Trust funding for culture in the Philadelphia region. Our goals as a center and as HPP, um, rather broadly defined, are to encourage risk-taking, creativity, imagination in our constituents' work. So at Heritage Philadelphia Program, our goals for our constituents are to create museums and sites that are engaging and relevant to their audiences and communities, and that help them make connections between the past and the present. We do this through the form of project support in our annual large grants program and by providing professional development in the form of workshops and lectures, study trips and publications like our blog and our brand new book that was just published this week we're very excited about. Um, so what does it mean to ask history practitioners to embrace risk, imagination and creativity and what do these things mean in the context of public history programming? When we talk with constituents and we say, try taking a risk, it's easy to understand how that might sound to them like try something ill-conceived. So how can we help our constituents engage with these ideas and understand what it really means to take a risk in a way that has a good likelihood of paying off for your organization and of course for your visitors? So it was that question that led us to um, come up with the idea of providing um, an opportunity for our constituents to practice taking risks. Um, you know, practice meaning quite literally um, getting a chance to do something instead of just talk about it. Um, so the idea was a workshop um, that would come with um, funding for very small projects. And um, I knew immediately that Kathy McLean was the right person to ask to help with this. And when I asked her about it, she agreed that it was, um, it was worth trying. So we developed a project together that um, we opened to our constituents through an application process. It was a very simple application, actually, um, really just wanting a, an opportunity for us to gauge um, sort of where they were in their professional careers and their openness to trying new things. That's mostly what we were interested in. We also asked for all of the applicants to provide a letter of support from their supervisor or their organization, and that did prove to be important later in the process, and you may hear some of that from the participants when we get to that. Um, we decided that one of, the, one of the ways we were going to organize this was around the idea of constraints, um, inspired in part by um, a quote from Charles and Ray Eames, who you see there on the motorcycle. Um, that's about design, but I think applies to this process as well. Um, Charles said, design depends largely on constraints. Here is one of the few effective keys to the design problem. The ability of the designer to recognize as many of the constraints as possible, his willingness and enthusiasm for working within these constraints, the constraints of price, of size, of strength, balance, of surface, of time, etc. Each problem has its own peculiar list. So we knew that there were constraints. We know that there are constraints to doing creative work. We didn't want to try and pretend that wasn't true. We wanted to, people to recognize them and work around them. And we also decided that it was important to um, 
provide a certain set of constraints that would frame everybody's work. And so in this case, that was that the projects were going to have a very low budget, the same budget in each case, a short timeline, and that they were going to use a theme that we developed jointly. So everybody was going to do their own take on a particular um, theme, no matter what institution they re represented. <coughs> These constraints and the way we set the workshop up also meant that the risk to each of them was somewhat limited. There's only so far wrong you can go with only $1,000 in eight weeks' time. Um, the risk is further mitigated by our support, the support of the funder, and the support that they provided for each other um, because they were able to provide feedback on the project ideas and as they were going through the process to check in with one another and see if what they were doing sounded like a good idea still. <clears throat> so our goals for the process were somewhat open-ended um, and they included the idea of successful failure by which we mean to acknowledge that if we're open to it, we can learn as much or more from things that don't work as we intended, as from those that do. The open-ended nature of the process was a frustration for some of the participants. <laughs> um, for our participants, um, we wanted to um, provide a collegial community experience. We wanted to provide them, obviously, with professional development and also possibly to plant the seeds, some seeds, for organizational change. We also wanted to give them a chance to do a project they thought might be impossible within their organization. And from our point of view, what we wanted was to, um, to push participants to really experience taking risks, risks, not just talk about it, and to observe their process, their creative process, in order to better understand the real constraints to doing creative work, ultimately in order for us to better support the creative process among our constituents um, and uh, help them be able to tap into their creativity and imaginative work. Um, so um, I'm about to turn it over to everybody else, but I just wanted to um, read you, if you were lucky enough to get one of these, um, <laughs> some of the participant feedback um, that we got after the process um, that reflects, I think, a little bit on some of the things that were successful about this experiment that we did together. Um, I'll just pick one. Um, uh, when it comes to being creative and innovative, it's more about process than product. And if you just start working with some ideas, not necessarily knowing where you will go, but investing in that explorational process, you can find yourself in a new place. I think you're going to hear some echoes of that from our other participants. I also just wanted to let you know that in addition to the three projects you'll hear about today, there were two other organizations that participated um, in this project. Um, one was the National Archives at Philadelphia. They did a project called Blasting Through the Silence, the Allegheny Arsenal Explosion of 1862 and the Creation of Public Memory. It was an exhibition project that allowed them to um, explore the process of making history um, with their visitors so that it in, um, the visitors were not, there was actually not much on the walls to see. Um, a bulk of the exhibition you can actually see in the, the bottom um, left slide there, that um, uh, there were a lot of documents that were available for people to look through and sort of um, understand how the memory of this event was created um, as filtered through the media and court records and, um, and uh, the, do the documents that are in the uh, archives collection. And then the other project was at the Bucks County Historical Society, which some of you may know um, instead as the Mercer Museum. 
Um, their program was called the Private Parts of Victorian Sexuality, which enabled them to um, push the boundaries of their adult programming. Um, <laughs> yes, in more ways than one. Um, they, um, this was actually the first of a series of three programs. In this one, um, there were obviously uh, hands-on collections. Um, of <laughs> <laughs> I'll move on. <laughs> they, um, they actually engaged a neo-burlesque troupe from Philadelphia to come and do a performance. Um, and there was a brief lecture also on um, Victorian sexuality. Um, the, the, this particular program was just an evening program. Um, <laughs> so there was nothing left behind for the kids. But um, they did have, you can see in one of those slides there, that they had a really full house. And it was a night in Pennsylvania with terrible, terrible weather. Um, so for them, it was really successful. And they got a lot of great feedback, including from some of their elderly volunteers and board members, which was not something they had anticipated. <laughs> so uh, before I finish up, I wanted to tell you um, that there's more information, and you can find my email address at um, the center's website, which is www.pcah.us. Um, there's a feature on our website called the Center Spotlight. If you search for No Idea is Too Ridiculous within that, you'll find a little bit more information. And as I said, you'll be able to find contact information for me. Um, and also to tell you that we have done this project one more time um, with a separate group of organizations. We finished up early this summer. Um, and if we have time and you're interested, I'd be happy to tell you a little bit about that um, after we wrap up. So with that, I'm going to turn this over to Kathy McLean. have come to love each other as part of this project. So it's like, I hope. Okay. Um, hi. I'm going to just get this. We'll see if I can get this right. Okay. Can you hear me? Okay. So this isn't this project. When Laura asked me if I'd be interested in doing this workshop, I jumped for joy because I've been um, harping on this issue for years and years and years, and most people just don't listen. A lot of people come up to me in the bars afterwards, you know, at conferences, particularly at AAM and at Aztec, and they say, yeah, I totally agree, but nobody, no organization or institution steps up to the plate and says, well, you want to take on some risk. So when Pew and Laura asked me if I'd be interested in working on this workshop, I was thrilled. And I think, um, just to give you a little bit of an overview, it's not, this workshop was never meant to be um, kind of spurring or inciting or, or, or planting the seeds of creativity just for creativity's sake. But because some of us believe, and I'm going to speak for myself right now, um, we're really looking at creativity and risk-taking as a way to solve some very big and serious problems that we have in our field. And it's not just the field of history museums. It's the museum field across the board, art museums, science museums. Everyone's talking about it. A lot of people might say, um, you know, particularly when the politicians and funders are in the room, these funders aside, but the other funders, um, oh no, everything's fine, we're doing great work. But in fact, we are 
in deep trouble as a field. And um, so, and the trouble is, well, I'll, I'll get into the trouble in a minute. Um, but uh, we saw this workshop as a way of tackling some of our problems. So which one do I push? This one, okay. So what is the problem, you might say? If any of you work in history museums, I can guarantee that you know what I'm talking about, even if you say, if you would raise your hand right now and say, oh no, we don't have problems, um, I, I, I don't believe it. <laughs> and I've been in this field a really long time. So what's the problem? Well, first of all, we're conservative. We're conservative by nature. We may not be conservative individuals, although some of us are, but we're conservative by nature. I mean, in most of our missions, we, we're here to conserve and protect. We're here to preserve. We're here to take care of things that the rest of society might not take care of, you know, and maybe not even intentionally, but they may destroy important documents or ideas. So we're here to protect something. And that makes us essentially um, conservative organizations in some sense. And that means that we're really risk averse. And, and we, you know, I, I guess everyone, all human beings are risk averse, but different fields attract or um, inspire different levels of risk taking. And I think in the theater, maybe people are a little less risky. Um, maybe in the medical profession, they're super risk averse. Uh, we're really risk averse. And a lot of it is that we, um, we're afraid of taking chances. I and mean, so often I hear people say, oh, we could never do that here. Our visitors will hate us. Our visitors won't come. They'll, they'll trash us. Or our funders will leave us. They won't give us any more money. Or our bosses will fire us. I mean, there's all kinds of, of risk averse stuff going down. We're also really beaten down. We say, when we start out in this field, I've got a great idea. And then we hear, oh, yeah, we tried that 20 years ago and it didn't work. Or I'd really like to do that. And someone says, oh, yeah, but you're assigned to something else and there's no time and money, and so you can just forget about that in this field. I, how many of you have heard things like this in your life, in your field, in your career? How <laughs> okay, and this is for the tape. You heard that laughter. For a voice from the audience. How many of us say things like that? We we all do it at, at one time. We're also really out of touch. Now, we know this, and every, every conference we all talk about it, but we're really seriously out of touch, and we're getting more and more out of touch as society moves forward. All the reports, the Horizon reports, there was somebody did a report, uh, did a, um, yes, Tim did a, 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 a workshop or a session on the state of the, uh, the Horizon report for on museums. The, um, Pew, uh, the uh, Irvine Foundation came out with a white paper a couple of years ago that talked about essentially our publics expect certain things from all of the service providers out there in society, and we're one of them, and they expect these things from us. They expect us to be technologically literate, as literate as they are, and that's getting away from us, guys. So, you know, we really, and we all know that. Uh, we're trying to catch up. They also expect, expect us to be excruciatingly current, now, in history museums, that, that doesn't mean that we have to be doing current affairs, but we need to be current in terms of the current thinking of the time, the current, and relating it to uh, what's going on out there in the world. And our visitors expect to be able to customize their own experiences in some way in our museums. And we don't, we're not there yet. And finally, we're just plain lonely. 
because not enough people come to visit us. So that's a big problem. So how do we behave? We're inundated, inundated by these problems. So what we do is we self-censor. We say, oh, I couldn't do that in this job. Oh, no, we could never do that here. And that was one of the things we asked in the workshop is we brought people together and we said, okay, we want you guys to all think about an idea that you've had for your institution where you've said, oh, that could never happen here, that you self-censored and essentially said, I'm not even going to bring that up because I'm going to get a big resounding no. We're also passive-aggressive. You know this. You know, we, we're friendly, or, and then, you know, we get into the bar, and we all talk about how it's impossible. We're working with, you know, morons that we can't, you know, we, there's never enough money. There's never enough time. And even if, there, if, even if money and time aside, the people have no vision. But we never say that in meetings. We just say that in the bars. And we're resigned. We say, okay, well, in my next job, I'll take care of that, or I'll do that on my own free time at home. I'm not going to try to push that at work. So what can we do about this? Well, that was what the No Idea is Too Ridiculous workshop was about. What we can do and what we need to do, no matter whether we attend the workshop or not, is we need to be able, we need to experiment. And it was so interesting. I don't know how many of you went to the memory, uh, the, um, the session this morning when the Jane Addams quote talks about experimenting. And this was back, you know, 150 years ago, 200 years. We need to experiment. We need to try new things. We can take risks. We're the only ones that are really keeping ourselves from taking risks. And I think when you hear the stories of what, what these guys did and how in the sessions, in the workshops, we all said, oh, no, we can't do our bot. We'll never, they'll never let us do this project. And at the end of the day, these guys went and did these projects, and their bosses and their visitors loved the projects. And people even, you know, it, it kind of, there was a lot of learning that went on even from the participants in terms of, you know, how, how far you can push it. Um, and you can think outside the box. The other, the other part of it is that we really do need to trust our visitors. They are smart people. They're as smart as we are. We have this attitude that they're the kind of dumb, unwashed people that we have to like change their lives by infusing them with all this information. But in fact, they're as smart as we are. And they're ready and willing to be partners with us in this stuff. And we can experiment and tell them that it's an, an, ex, it's an experiment. And they love that. They'll be right there with us. And we can collaborate with other people, and we can collaborate with our own colleagues, and we can support each other. And I think part of the issue in all of this is when you take a risk, it's really nice to know that, as Laura said earlier, someone has your back. And we need to do more of that in this field so that we can take risks. And the, I think the most important thing, and one of the biggest parts of this workshop was, you know, people came together for two days, and we talked about, oh, we can't do that. And then and they would come up with ideas, and then we'd say, you know, the Pew folks and I would say, that's not a very risky idea. Why don't you? That's not very ridiculous. Try something a little more ridiculous, and you'll hear how they they really went there. Um, <laughs> but then what we did was we we talked to each other halfway through the project, and then we came back again for a debrief where we all talked about, in retrospect, what did we learn? And the Pew staff and I learned as much as the people doing the project, and we all kind of share, shared our learnings and said, okay if we were going to do this next time or when we go back into the, into the work environment, what are we going to do differently? What did we learn from this project? So I think the thing to remember is that we can be open to new ideas, no matter how ridiculous they seem on the surface, because when you really push on ideas, they're not as ridiculous as they seem when you get into them. Thank you.
I found out about this um, project uh, through a coworker of mine, Dana Lamparello, who started the project with me. Uh, we had a very interesting journey through creating a musical finding aid and even coming up with what it is, because nobody knows what a musical finding aid is. So hopefully, before we actually get to it, you'll have some idea in your mind, because I'm sure you have things turning in your heads right now of exactly what it could be. And that was one of the big problems we had, was just trying to get this project going. So I'm from the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and if you don't know much about that organization, it's one of the oldest uh, historical societies in America. It was founded in 1824. We have over 21 million documents, and the only institution that has more records uh, relating to early Americana is uh, the Library of Congress. Uh, the, the institution is, uh, has been pretty traditional, but starting with the hiring of a new president, I believe in 2007, Kim Syed, uh, there was real focus to kind of try and revitalize and bring up new things, especially technology. So I was brought on in the end of 2009 to kind of um, uh, spur the development of digital collections and really bring digitization as something that HSP does, something they didn't really do before. So when we were talking about this project and getting going, um, we had to come back with something really crazy, so we went with our theme, which wasn't, which we haven't mentioned yet, the theme for the project that we all decided on was under the radar. So we kind of loosely attached that um, to sound through, because radar is kind of like sonar, and um, that's like music, and hey, let's do a musical finding aid. Yeah, it's a leap, but it worked. Um, so if you don't know what a finding aid is, it's traditionally a... Uh, it was a purposefully non-interpretive document that helps researchers locate materials within a collection. There's some background information on the collection, there's usually location information, and um, just other useful information that helps a researcher, but it's purposefully non-interpretive so it doesn't impart anything onto the research to influence their decision as best as the processing archivist can create the tool in that way. So what we wanted to do was take this general uh, research tool that's thought of for traditional research. I mean, HSP's main four audiences are genealogists, uh, scholars and general researchers, uh, history organizations, and um, I can't remember the last one. No. Um, yeah, educators, thank you. Um, those are four very traditional uh, research groups. Well, there's nothing in there specifically for artists or other people like that. And there's nothing in there to serve as sort of an emotional guide to a collection. So we thought, what better way to provide kind of uh, an emotional guide, which, which of course turns it into something that's a little more interpretive, which some people down the road afterwards in our feedback had issues with, but that's still something that uh, there didn't exist. So that's what we wanted to create. So at HSP, we had the perfect collection for this project. It's the Mary Elizabeth Halleck Greenwald Collection. Uh, Miss Mary here was a woman who was born in Lebanon in 1871. Uh, she came to Philadelphia when she was, I believe, 14 or thereabouts. Um, her, she, her family was wealthy, and um, she took to music. So uh, she was perfect for this project because the collection had a good enough size. It was seven series, about 18 linear feet, and um, her background in music was a little bit on the eccentric. She went and invented uh, a color organ. So what that is, is it's a, it's a device that um, plays light with music. And so she, she invented an entire system called Narather that uh, you could use to annotate uh, the light and the colors to go with the music and the sounds as they played within this device. 
Um, so she did that until the 1930s when she then got enveloped in legal battles because uh, Disney and other places were basically stealing a lot of her inventions that she had engineered. And um, then after that, she just kind of gave it up and did what she did. All right. So when we were working through this project, uh, we had a lot of problems that we had to solve. Uh, one of the first parts was just how we needed to interact with HSP staff. Um, I mentioned before that uh, one of my coworkers brought me into this project. I actually went into it with two of them. But within a month, both of them had left the organization. And on top of that, when, uh, the one of them that had left, I absorbed probably about 80% of her responsibilities into my own position. So. Not only were we looking to do something that we probably needed help with to begin with, but now I had to do it by myself. <laughs> so uh, we went and talked to uh, a couple people to put feelers out to see how this would go within the organization, people we felt comfortable talking to without letting the project get away with us. And it became clear that because of how nebulous the concept of a musical finding aid was in the first place, it wouldn't work. I mean, we talked to our programs officer, and um, I mean, she, she loved the idea, but she kept getting away with it. She, she started talking about doing like a, a musical finding aid concert series and like doing a musical finding aid a month. And um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it just, it didn't, it didn't work very well. So we decided instead to kind of just bring it back down and keep it to myself and some staff in my department and a couple other people's and uh, work away. The other issue we had was just working with and finding musicians and other artists that would work on the project. Um, we had not really worked with musicians or artists before at all. Um, the budget that we had for this project was $1,000. We had no idea what to expect to pay these people, uh, let alone find them. So that was a big challenge for us. And then on top of that is that we knew this is an audience that doesn't typically use archives or archival material, and we weren't sure what they would think of that. So we had to think of new ways on how to present archives and archival materials to them in a way that they could kind of understand both the project and uh, how it would go. So what we ended up doing was the Greenfield Collection had seven series, so we wanted to find seven artists. So each of them would be assigned a series where they would then look at the collection materials, interpret that, go back and write a piece, and then I would uh, kind of uh, enter the old finding aid data, so it would be in a digital format, and attach the, uh, whatever they created to their individual series. We found seven artists. Uh, five of them stayed with the project and completed it. And then we turned that into the musical finding aid. I'll just show it to you really briefly. <clears throat> so um, you can go home and look at this. It's still online. This is just an offline version. Um, but this, it's just a simple um, rendition of the finding aid that I took the paper version of. I had a staff member put it into Archivist Toolkit, generate an EAD HTML-based finding aid from that, and then I just uh, tweaked it and edited it a bit to incorporate the music and things. This is just the general page. There's no music associated with this one. Um, but you can click on the sidebars here, and if you get to the series that have music, which are one, two, three, and... Um, four and seven, you'll get to it. And I'm just going to play one of them for you. It's short. It's also, I want to show this one to you because he, he actually did a video uh, of his interpretation of one of the pieces in the collection that really struck him within his series. His series was series two. It was on the color organ itself.
So the finding aid, the way we introduced this is uh, we made a blog post. That was our way of making it public. Um, so the finding aid was posted online. I posted it to the public and advertised on several listservs. It was a big su uh, success right away. Uh, we had received more than double the uh, blog hits we'd ever hit in a single day on that one posting, and it's, con uh, it's continued to be popular. Um, it's very interesting when I keep track of it on Google Analytics or looking at our WordPress stats because uh, it still gets one to three hits a day on average usually, but every once in a while it'll spike, and for a few days it'll get like 20 to 40, and all I can do is surmise that somebody somewhere has talked about it, and then people come and view it, and then it trails off again. So that's been interesting to watch as well. Okay. So after this went live, um, the internal response was very good. Um, most of the organization didn't really know what we were doing, um, but they were very pleased with it once they saw it and they had something tangible that they could actually look at and be like, oh, that's a musical finding aid. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, immediately there was talk about what else we can do, other things we can do, and um, part of what we did was we hosted an event where we brought uh, four of the five artists in. The other one had moved on to Pittsburgh and couldn't make it. Uh, and had a night to talk about it. And this was great because it wasn't something originally funded within the project, so it was something the organization uh, and a, a small side grant were able to fund to bring in and pay honorariums and food. And uh, people were able to come in, view the collections, listen to everybody talk about how um, they felt about the project and how they came about making the pieces of music that they did. Um, the five artists, by the way, are Andrew Clearfield. Uh, this is from uh, next to the podium over to the left. Andrew Clearfield, Maurice Wright, Max Lawrence, Wilhelm Echeverria, who's also an archivist at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and um, not pictured is um, Ted Houtlinger. I always mispronounce his last name. I feel bad, but okay. All right. So overall, uh, I would have to say this project was a success for us. Um, we achieved what we wanted to do. We brought a non-standard audience into the archives to use materials that would have never ever set foot in archives before. Um, beyond that. Uh, We've also had um, uh, some of the artists do things beyond the project that still relate to the collection. One of them has published a paper based on Mary Greenwalt and done uh, conference presentations on her. One of the artists has done some more individual artworks or, or uh, music pieces on her afterwards as well. Um, we also uh, got through a lot of the constraints that we thought we had, and some of them weren't as big of a deal as we thought. Money, for example, we had $1,000, like I mentioned, turned out to not be an issue at all. Of the seven artists we contacted, only one of them asked how much the job paid, and he quit. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the other five um, didn't ask at all till the end. And one of them, in fact, usually charges $1,000 a minute for compositions. And she gave us a seven-minute piece for $200. So that worked out very well. Um, yeah. Uh, we uh, also were able to finally kind of get across the idea of what the... Um, uh, of what a musical finding aid was. That was one of our bigger challenges. Uh, if we had needed more help with from the organization or from other people, that might have been a much bigger problem, just kind of getting across what it was we were trying to do, but it ended up working out okay. Uh, working with other fields was a bit of a challenge as well. I uh, learned a little bit more about artists. I got to see how they think and use archival collections and the things that they kind of attract, that attract to them with, when they're using archival materials, um, as well as uh, other things that they might like to see down the road. Uh, I also got to learn a little bit about trying to wrangle artists, which is very difficult. Um, so I could have used a little bit stronger um, like timetables and things to keep to it, but it all worked out okay. Uh, only a couple of them were late, and it wasn't by much, so it worked all right. Uh, and then finally, the biggest challenge was time. I mean, like I mentioned, we went from three people heading up this project to me. 
um, and just keeping everything on task and getting it done on time was a big challenge. Uh, luckily, the artists were mostly working independently, so once I found them and showed them the materials, I didn't have to do too much other than make sure that they finished on time and when they wanted to come back in to view something, be accessible to them. So uh, at HSP, short term, like I mentioned, well, we got to do the, uh, the Musical Finding Aid event, which was not originally planned for. This also allowed for another, not quite as out there idea, but we uh, someone really wanted to republish a cookbook as was, just basically digitize it and print it as a book from the 1860s. And so I believe that a project like this opened that up a little bit more to make the administration more willing to do something like that. Um, long term, uh, HSP in general seems to be a lot more open to doing projects like this. There's, uh, there was talk before uh, the last budget cycle of adding a kind of a slush fund for staff to who come up with crazy ideas of their own to just kind of have some money available to do that. I don't know if that got added into the budget or not, but it was something that was certainly talked about seriously from the administration. Yeah. All right. So next, I'll just leave it to Kristen. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Kristen Qualls. I'm the Collection and Exhibit Specialist at the um, Franklin Institute. So the Franklin Institute is a science museum, so I'm doing a little bit of split personality here at the History Museum Conference. Um, but I like to call us a science center with a technology museum hidden inside. Um, we have been around um, as long as HSP has, since 1824, so we have managed to amass some collections in that period of time. Um, and one of the things, I have a background in the history of science and collections management when I came to my job as an exhibit developer. One of the things I really wanted to do was pull those collections out of the basement and the attic and put them on display. Um, so you can see here in this picture of our current electricity exhibit that we just opened up. In the background, that is um, a display case of our historic light bulb collection. Um, which we have on display with this interactive that shows you how much power it takes to uh, generate energy to light up different types of light bulbs. I also note that the focus of the PR photo is the interactive lighting up the light bulbs, not the um, actual artifacts, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. Baby steps. Yes, baby steps, <laughs> baby steps. So this opportunity at No Idea is too ridiculous. I was really excited about to, again, give me a little something to help um, push this idea of history and science and that we can use history to educate, fulfill our mission to educate about science. Um, it also gave me an opportunity to uh, partner with a colleague um, who had just joined the institution at the time because we were helping to sponsor the Philadelphia Science Festival and I was really excited about this idea of more community work, of getting out of our building and not having it have to be a permanent exhibit inside our building and so I wanted to partner with her um, and also just to develop more relationships with new folks in my institution. So my goal again was to connect history to, um, you know, to current science and our goal together was to show that low production value is okay. Some place like the Franklin Institute, it's everything's got to be bigger and better and brighter and louder than anyone else out there. It's very competitive in the science center field about who can come up with the biggest and best. Um, so we wanted to show that it doesn't have to be a giant, overly designed, interactive device that you can still educate with uh, foam core and electrical tape. Um, <laughs> 
We also wanted to show that partnerships can be low-key. Again, it doesn't have to be this massive partnership that we enter into that is some sort of, you know, lifelong commitment that you can just walk down the street and ask the restaurant to help host something. And again, we also wanted to show you could leave the building and it would be okay. <laughs> So for the no idea is too ridiculous, um, again, as, as they pointed out, they wanted to push us to do something different. And one thing we had thought about is as the Franklin Institute, we do interpret Ben Franklin. If anyone's been to Philadelphia, you might notice <laughs> we like him a lot. <laughs> and the Franklin Institute actually houses the National Memorial to Ben Franklin. Um, so, you know, right, right when you walk in the building is this giant 32-ton statue of Ben staring down at you rather seriously. So... It's a very, sort of, we treat it as a very weighty topic, you know, very reverent toward Mr. Franklin, and certainly he has done a number of amazing things that uh, we can be reverent about, but we also wanted to show the other side of Ben Franklin, who we believe is a person that um, can be connected to people today in his various interests, and so we wanted to explore the idea of forbidden Franklin. <laughs> in other words, what could Jerry and I come up with that if we went back to the Franklin Institute, our president would come down to our office and say, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> so we came up with beer. <laughs> so we partnered with Yards Brewing Company, who is a local brewer up in Philadelphia, and we like them because they actually brew um, Ben Franklin's beer. Um, they have a series called The Ales of the Revolution where they took recipes from George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and Ben Franklin and recreated them for the modern audience. It's really, really great, and I love that connection of, of being able to use all your senses, including taste, to connect you to the past. Um, we also had the Kite and Key restaurant that opened up uh, literally a block up the street from us, so named because they opened up a block up the street from us. <laughs> And um, we also had uh, a colonial historian who uh, specialized in beer brewing techniques of the colonial era that we wanted to partnership, partner with because he had this knowledge base. So we were looking at these new partners as a way to, um, again, get out from under that weighty statue of Ben Franklin and sort of free us to do a little more exploration into how we interpret him. Um, and also, again, talk about getting you know, new audiences and getting outside of our, our building. So overcoming some constraints. Um, one thing we had is we, I'm not a specialist in Ben Franklin's beer brewing techniques, so we wanted to find out more information. So we began on an odyssey of talking to curators around Philadelphia about Ben Franklin and his history, and they were all willing to come to our event and talk to the people but not necessarily talk to us and let, it in, let us interpret it. So there was definitely some um, ideas about curatorial authority of knowledge that we were dealing with trying to break down. Um, and that's part of how we got um, our friend Rick Magner here, who wasn't, isn't a curator, this is his hobby, um, and he had actually you know, developed, built himself old historic, based on historic brewing gear and equipment, so, um, by finding someone that actually wasn't in the museum field or in academia was how we were able to get that information in a way that could be shared with the public. Um, then, there, then there was the issue of the $1,000 check. <laughs> As we noted, this project gave us $1,000 to work with and you know, being the Franklin Institute, a large institution that 
isn't too much money for us. But when that check arrived, our development office called me and Jerry up and reamed us out for half an hour about how could we establish a relationship with someone who's going to give us money without talking to them first and letting them handle it. And Jerry and I were like, it's a thousand dollars. So they wanted to have complete control of the Franklin Institute's relationship with HPP. Of course, that's because they're sponsored by Pew, so there's a bigger, yeah, there's a bigger fish there. Um, so of course, so of course, my response to this is just to tell HPP to send everything to my home email address. <laughs> We also had internal partners that were afraid um, of having so many external partners. Who has control here? Who, you know, who's vetting the content? Who's branding this? How is this going to reflect back on this that we're at a bar and we're supposed to be a family-friendly institution? Because apparently they've never been to a bar to see all the people that bring their kids. <laughs> um, and so there was definitely some obstacles we had to overcome there. And so the way Jerry and I worked it out was the under the radar theme we took more as a way to approach doing the project <laughs> rather than the actual project. So we really worked under the radar, kept it to, as Matt did, a few other um, staff members who we knew would think this was a great idea and support us. I was literally walking around with like my backs toward other people's desks, trying to avoid them seeing our graphics and things like that before I got stuck in a saga of 52 approvals before it could be printed. Um, but that also meant it kind of built internal support among a group of people at the Franklin that were interested in pushing the boundaries and doing this. And again, not only did I have support with the group from the No Idea is Too Ridiculous, I now had support within my institution to do this and continue to do other projects. So we had the science of art colonial brewing. Again, we had a colonial brewer up there going through a demonstration of how they brewed beer in colonial times. We brought the modern brewers there to do a demonstration of brewing now so we can compare and contrast how different techniques, different ingredients, different equipment affected the way beer was made then and the way it's made now. I brought, um, we have a replica of Ben Franklin's uh, silver tankard that I brought out to the bar, and that was also, it was right up to the last minute whether or not I was going to be allowed to do that, and I kept saying, it's a replica and we have four copies. <laughs> I promise I won't let it out of my hands, I will guard it with my life. So finally, and luckily I'm lucky to have a curator who's very open to, to the idea of pushing the boundaries of how we can use um, collections, so he helped fight that fight for me and, and we got the tankard to come out. Um, which I was really excited to sort of take the tankard back to its home grounds. This is where Ben would have brought it when he went to the taverns to talk to people and share new ideas and, you know, create a revolution. And I was really excited to be able to bring it back to sort of its, its stomping grounds as opposed to in a vitrine behind plexiglass where there's no food or beverage allowed anywhere near it. Um, so we also... Um, it brought, in this way, it brought um, the science and history then became part of just the everyday conversation of the people who were at the bar. So it wasn't, you have to come to us to learn this information. Um, it wasn't 
you know, couched in your two-hour trip to the museum, and this is where the information lives. We brought it to them. They were interested because they were drinking beer. Oh, here's someone who's going to tell us about Ben Franklin and beer. And suddenly they're talking about history, and they're talking about Ben Franklin, and they're talking about differences in ingredients from colonial times to now. And so it was a really great way to connect the past to the present, where the visitor was at, instead of making them come to us. Um, it was very successful because um, we've continued the partnership with Kite and Key and Yards. We continue to do events up at the Kite and Key, and Yards actually, what they are brewing right there in that picture, ended up becoming the beer of the Philadelphia Science Festival, um, which was very exciting for us that we actually got a beer for a science festival. <laughs> um, also, uh, since then, our new educational mission is to push it out outside of our building to take our programs to outside, not just through our traveling science show, but actually, you know, go to different um, venues like restaurants, like theaters, like street corners, and share our science there and not make the visitors come in and not fear that we're losing the ticket sales and, and that. Um, and also, for me, um, I was promoted, uh, partially as a result. <laughs> So now I'm working in both the exhibits and the curatorial department um, with the goal of promoting you know, new ways of using our collection and bringing more ties between uh, the curatorial department and the rest of the museum to bring our history more to the forefront. Well, in listening to my colleagues talk about their projects, I figured out why the three of us might be here representing the whole project, and it's the year 1824. Um, Reuben Haynes, who I'll be talking about, who lived at Wick, renovated the house in 1824, and he was a founder of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and a member of the Franklin Institute, so it all comes together with 1824. Um, but um, I just, just to start out, I'll say that I got involved, I, I didn't even really know about the, the No Idea Project. I didn't see the invitation. I didn't work on the application. My director just said, well, what do you think? Will you, will you do this with me? Are you game? Okay, sure. So I don't really think of myself particularly as a change agent um, in my institution, and I didn't realize what an adventure I was in for with this project. Um, but here's a picture of Wick. It's in historic Germantown, which is a community in northwest Philadelphia. And within that, along the, mostly along the avenue, there are um, 15 historic sites. So we have a lot of history going on there. Um, and Wick is a historic house, farm, and garden, and um, it works to um, keep all those functions in, um, in a balance. It was inhabited by um, nine generations of a quirky Quaker family of hoarders and recorders. <laughs> the collection includes over 10,000 artifacts and books, 100,000 documents, which are actually on deposit at the American Philosophical Society downtown, and about 40 different old roses that have been growing in situ behind the house since the 1820s. Uh, WIC has been open to the public in some fashion since 1973 and really got going with the um, bicentennial movement in um, 1976. Our current staff is one full-time director, 
part-time curator, that's myself, uh, a new curatorial assistant, a landscape curator, a farmer, a horticulturalist, an education coordinator, a development coordinator, live-in caretakers, and a volunteer-volunteer coordinator. So again, a lot of things to keep in balance. Um, institutionally, this is what our support, our primary support um, is still this wonderful group of people who gather every year. This is our New Year's tea and um, includes family members. So the gentleman with the bow tie standing is a descendant of the Haynes family, um, sharing family stories. His wife is sitting in one of our easy chairs, so we um, break the Rembrandt rules on occasion, and we use our collections. Um, and so we're, we're, we're actively working hard at this point to recruit new board members as this founding generation is truly becoming more elderly and less actively engaged with the site. Um, and in terms of, of our culture, um, although WIC is not a Quaker organization in any explicit kind of a way, um, the WIC Association values organizational consensus and operates um, with an, a, a sort of underlying Quaker culture. And to characterize that, I would say I experience it as cryptic communication and process-oriented, careful, and deliberate forward movement. <laughs> um, and in 2010, we completed an interpretive planning process and that was funded by the Heritage Philadelphia Program, yet again. And um, the base essentially, we came up with two themes, which I can sort of summarize in a nugget up there on the screen, that WIC is an, or an organically grown, authentic place. One big cabinet of curiosities containing um, more curiosities with each layer that you can delve into as you explore the site. And the house itself is really devised based on this 1824 renovation as being about ways of looking and experiencing and framing space and view. So one enters through the 18th century Dutch door and views a staircase, um, but you'll see these pairs of movable folding doors on the side there that were put in in 1824 and they can be manipulated to completely reframe the view of an expanse of three, um, three rooms looking out to the rose garden and the lawn, all these spaces just one room deep. So as part of our interpretive planning process, we now have peop our visitors, when we can with smaller groups, always enter through this door, experience the space this way, and we've we've been calling it deconstructing our house museum so that it's no longer set up simply to evoke a sense of a family living here, but trying to have more and more of those objects out on view and grouping them thematically, sometimes not based on time period, really opening ourselves up to using this house as a gallery for all of this family's stuff that's been left behind for us. And here's just a couple examples of how we've changed things. So we have this kind of parade of chairs, um, some of Reuben Haynes's um, curiosities on exhibit on that center table, things, um, relics and other family possessions in drawers. And this is our abolition sofa with um, a cake plate with the symbol of the movement and a, a sampler made by an African-American girl in a school in New York. 
So some of the th these objects are going to be showing up in some cartoons I'm about to show you, which was the product of, of our um, ridiculousness. And we, um, we basically spent our $1,000 paying our cartoonist. So one of the she'll feature um, Reuben Haynes's um, Franklin chair, which is a relic. Someone in an earlier presentation today was talking about kind of the butts on chairs. And this chair has had two important butts, Franklin's and Lafayette's, in 1825. <laughs> um, and so we, we act this has recently come back to the collection in 2007 from a descendant and um, has been a real special thing to have around. Um, and that's Reuben Haynes, and he is our Rembrandt. He is by Rembrandt Peel. <laughs> Some more of his, um, his curiosities, the wood duck, um, mineral collection and a sample from the herbarium. And here is our um, Rubens cabinet and um, relic collection cartoon. So I want to just leave this up for a minute so you get a chance to look at it. It's also one of the spreads here in the, in the handout. Um, but we worked with a cartoonist named Melissa Lomax, who was local, and this was on a fairly short timeline. Um, that we finally got this together. Uh, we had, uh, in terms of overcoming obstacles, I had a, a death in my family last year, and um, I work at two historic sites, and I teach courses at a local university, so getting me and the director to just sit down together to really plan out what we were going to do was, um, was a real challenge for us, and neither one of us wanted to decide either. We loved brainstorming, we were having a really good time thinking about possibilities, and then all of a sudden, it's like, darn, that meeting is coming up. We got to do something. <laughs> so, um, so this this was our um, decision, and we um, we're in terms of the constraints. Our our un sort of thinking about what under the radar was was to address some of the stories within WIC that have always been um, held sacred within the organization or to the family, and just poke at them, kind of um, look at how we can think about them more um, holistically. So this is just, uh, this one's really just pure fun, I think, kind of celebrating, again, some of the things that Reuben Haynes um, collected. Um, the next one is going to deal with a, a person who is really kind of an ancestor for the Haynes's. His name is Caspar Wister. He emigrated from Germany in 1717 and was quite an entrepreneur making money in um, button making, founding a glassworks in southern New Jersey. And this is his parlor desk and bookcase, his parlor chairs, his um, daughter's needlework from the early 18th century. So these things are all part of our collection that are not valuable from a, a decorative arts perspective and have just always been very sacred objects to this family that feels um, very connected to Casper um, Wister. And what we did with this cartoon was really um, get at who Casper Wister really was. He became a Quaker when he came to um, Pennsylvania and one of the ways that he made money was to um, pay other people left back behind in Germany that he could connect with um, to work with people coming over so he could smuggle guns in their household goods and not have to pay duty on them and then sell them to people in Pennsylvania. And this seems a little non-Quakerly. <laughs> um, also, he was very proud of the fact that he never owned slaves. And there's even, um, there was a statement he wrote about this that survives in archives. Um, 
So the cartoonist is sort of making fun of him here in the top left. I am proud to say that I never owned a human being. But he would borrow them. He would pay their owners to use them. He would lease them. So mm, that doesn't seem like not engaging and supporting slavery somehow. Um, And then across the bottom here, this is an issue that has come to be one we're still dealing with in the present because we would like to be able to serve alcohol at WIC so the people could come and relax and have fun and somehow people are more likely to write big checks when they have (laughs) alcohol. and so th- th- is, this is also a bit of a contradiction for the site because the Haynes's ran a brewery on the site from the mid-18th century, and it wasn't fully defunct until about the 1830s. The Germantown Brewery or Browery, and this is a drawing of a sign that's still in our collection, a, a massive sign that's in our cellar. Um, but the final family resident in um, the 1970s, Mary Haynes, left a letter with her will. So it's not quite legally binding. It's not part of her will. But she said that she never wanted the property to be open on Sunday, and she wanted no alcohol to ever be consumed there. And so this has been something that's a real challenge. Do we break the wishes of this person who set up the whole trust and whole organization? Do we essentially break her trust? just so we can have fun and hopefully raise some more money. And I won't spend too much time on this one. This is poking fun at how um, Ruben uh, named the property on a a print of a house in England that he thought he was connected to but had nothing to do with. So it's completely random that Wick is called Wick. It's just his, um, his, his own attachment to the idea. Um, And in terms of how we've continued to work with these cartoons, we have them posted around the house with objects that they relate to. Um, We've put on exhibit this massive um, mash stirrer that we have for making beer um, and and talking about the alcohol issue. We have some old whiskey bottles and things from the early 20th century generation that still have alcohol in them that are on view. Um, And we've created this little cabinet of curiosities using um, this portable pigeonhole cabinet that's part of the collection. And so we're using objects in our collection and layering them in somewhat unconventional ways um, for the public to enjoy because we have so much stuff. But these are cards, in some cases with just an object and information of sort of scavenger hunt, but the cartoons are part of that as well. And people can um, read about the stories that the cartoons portray that way. And this has proved to be a lighthearted way for people to get in to our site and engage with it and evokes, you, know, you hear when people are doing their kind of self-guided part of their tour, you, you hear these little chuckles as they um, encounter them. And um, one of the other results of this, though, is um, at one point last year, I had a rifle on exhibit on a sofa to accompany the Casper Rister um, cartoon. And a board member um, very sternly took me aside and said, I'm very concerned about having that rifle on view. That Someone could very easily steal that and just get out the door with it. And I thought, well, what about all this other stuff around that someone could easily steal? This is clearly about the gun. So I I do think the cartoons have gotten under a few people's um, skin, but they are still part of our interpretation and and are having a life in the organization. Um, 
so I, I just wanted to quickly lay out a couple of lessons from this that, um, that I've taken away and I hope maybe that you can take away from our projects. And that is um, that institutions really wear people out and there, really, there must be a balance of work that nurtures us to keep our own sort of fulfillment tanks at least partially full um, along the way to make our, our work feel rewarding for us and that um, through a self-discovery and experience, we can learn what does fill our tanks. And this project, I think, helped me to discover an aspect of thinking outside the box and thinking more creatively about my work that I didn't know I might find so rewarding um, and really nurtured me as a professional person through the exchanges we had as a group, um, the work itself. And I feel that although, um, you know, it wasn't very much money. I think you could say, well, how is that project actually supporting an institution? But by supporting the, um, the people it, that serve the institution, it filters through. And I think that this project has made me a better steward of the sites I serve. Um, and the other thing is that uh, I've had my own sort of, um, I work for two small organizations, and one of them I've worked for for over a decade now, and sort of well, what am I really going to do when I grow up? I mean, I just work for these little dinky sites and oh, always sort of thought, well, maybe I'll want to work for a bigger institution at some point. And listening to my colleagues at the bigger institutions <laughs> was very eye-opening. And I realized that, uh, you know, working in smaller places without the layers of bureaucracy where sometimes I am the development person, um, and you know, with simply my director as a partner in this project was a very different experience, and I didn't face some of the obstacles. Our our obstacles were really only somewhat trying to get at changing organizational culture for us. Um, so I wanted to close with um, this slide again. I mentioned that WIC is about ways of viewing. And so you're looking at a camera lucida. This is actually in our collection, and we have Ruben Haynes' actual one in the collection. It was for being able to um, look at objects and draw them easily, and you'd adjust this angle of these lenses and mirrors to um, create reflection. And so, um, and then the, the, uh, the view of the overmantle in the parlor, which is reflecting those framing doors. And this idea that it just takes kind of adjusting our view just a little bit, really, to um, reframe how we see our work and our institutions. And um, this has been very rewarding for us. So I hope that you all can um, take home a little ridiculousness with you. So here's contact information for all of us. Um, since we got started a little late, we're, I know we're out of time, but if any of you do want to stay to ask questions, I'm sure we'd all be happy to stay and answer them. Anybody? Yeah. So for the tape, I'm going to just repeat this, and then Kristen's going to come over and answer it. Um, the question is, how, how did she make the transition from functioning under the organizational radar to, well, now's the day of the program, and somebody's going to need to know about it? <laughs> um, 
Well, actually, what I did was the program was going to be happening in mid-November, and every Halloween we have the staff can go around to each department and you know, trick-or-treat, and so we had the postcards printed and just put them in the trick-or-treat bins in our department. <laughs> Nope, actually the ones that the, the development people didn't call me, uh, they, we'd already kept them up to date on what was happening, the sort of the managerial higher up level. What actually ended up happening is a lot of my coworkers more on my level got the postcards and showed up and really supported the, the event and then that fed back up to the higher level of how awesome this event was and I made these connections and so it was successful in that way. Any other questions? Benjamin, you always have a question. <laughs> yeah, sorry, the question was how long. We had about from the initial workshop to the presentations that they all made to each other about their projects, it was a little more than eight weeks. Yeah, that's fast. <laughs> Two days. We met for, yeah, two days at the beginning and then two days. We really wanted, we could have presented the projects in a single day, but we wanted everyone to really have a chance to reflect back on what they learned from each other and what were the successful strategies that they used to work within, you know, uh, within and under and around their, um, their constraints. Yes, Dan. So for the tape, the question is, did you feel fear? And when and, when and if you did, what did you do with it? Uh, well, for me, I did feel fear, especially when my colleagues left. Um, <laughs> I didn't know if the project had driven them out or if it was the institution. But either way, they were gone, and I was there by myself. Um, so my biggest fear was just the time commitment. I was worried not only of doing a poor job on the project because I didn't have time, but doing a poor job with my other duties because I didn't have the time and putting too much stress on my other department. And while it did strain my, um, both my, my own work and uh, the, the few people that I enlisted to help me with, overall I think it was very positive. I mean, we suffered for two months, but uh, the afterwards... It's just been great. I mean, there's, I've gotten positive responses from everybody inside and outside the organization, and it was um, just it was worth that fear. I felt fear as well, and I, because I kind of felt like I was partially responsible for this workshop. And on day one, at the end of day one, when um, Bill came to me and said, "Everybody seems really depressed. Maybe we should change the way we're doing this workshop." And I thought, "Oh my God, what have I done?" Because there is a time, you know, it, it, the way these guys talked about it, you don't actually get the sense of angst. We spent two days up front grappling with it, and I just made a little note. These guys made it kind of sound easy to come up with the ideas, but. That wasn't the first idea that Matt came up with. I mean, they came up with ideas, and then we would say, yeah, and they'd go back to the drawing board. And then by the end of the first day, with everybody talking about their institutions and how difficult it was to work in their institutions, everybody became deeply depressed to the point where the Pew people were freaking out. And I said, just let it happen. It always happens this way. And... <laughs> And uh, people will come around, you know, we'll see the light tomorrow after a good night's sleep, which we did. Actually, it's interesting. The moments you're describing, Kathy, were when I felt fear, too, because I remember distinctly um, we met two days in a row, 
and uh, we had our first day, and it's kind of like, oh, I don't know how to be creative. Oh my gosh, this is scary. Like, what's, what am I supposed to be doing? And I take a yoga class on Tuesday nights, and I remember I couldn't do anything that was a balancing pose. I thought, this thing has me totally off balance. I'm just a wreck. So. I um, mean, I would say my biggest fear was definitely grappling with a larger institution and being an instigator within this very conservative ma machine. <laughs> yes, um, correct. And I think the end result that. Um, you know, my boss supported me with the letter that helped me with the institution and at the end that that created enough support to actually get me promoted showed that actually my fear turned out to be quite the opposite. The question is, what did Pew learn from it, and how are we going to continue? Well, I mentioned when we started that we did this project again um, earlier this year with a second group, and we did make some small changes, um, primarily um, having to do with how much interaction the participants had with each other outside of the um, workshops, so that we had check-in meetings, so that they had continual support, and that didn't sort of lag in the middle, and I think we found that that was pretty successful. We didn't make a lot of other changes so far because we sort of wanted to see with another group Group, you know, what kinds of results did we have? And I think my hope is that we're going to do this one more time for one more sort of group of people and see what happens. And, and then we'll decide what happens next. But it really was, I mean, I'll say for me personally, I, I didn't fully appreciate the kinds of institutional constraints that were present. Um, you know, Kristen's example is a good one that I mean, I understood that there was bureaucracy, but that it was so fraught, um, you know, I <laughs> was a surprise to me. And I think that that is informing the way we work with people. And I would say that in general, we have started to change our overall professional development approach to one that's more about working with individuals um, and less about working with organizations. And I think that, that this, this experience is part of that decision that we've been making. Bill, do you want to add anything? Yeah, the only thing I would add is that we... Microphone. Sorry. You want it on tape. Um, that we learned that we needed to take some risks, too, in order to ask our constituents to do that. And they, I think, understood that we were taking risks. We were modeling risk-taking and not really knowing how any of this was going to play out along with them. And I think we built goodwill with them. And we've, you know, there's no question that we have to... You know, we have to be able to take risks in our practice in order to expect our constituents to do that as well. So, so we continue to do that, I hope. Yes, another question. Um, well, I'll let the participants ask that, but, and it, oh, sorry, uh, the question was what failed spectacularly and what didn't work, and nothing's fail, failed spectacularly, actually. Um, uh, the kinds of things, what's interesting is that um, everybody was able to do their project, everybody did it within the time frame they had, and they made it work within the budget that we, were, that we had given them. But um, the kinds of challenges you, know, you heard about, uh, sort of organizational challenges and time challenges and that sort of thing, it, what, it didn't turn out to be a question of failure, even if it might have looked like it was at the time, um, but that they really had to dig deep and figure out, well, 
in another circumstance, I might just quit here, but you know, I told these guys I'd do this thing and I have to figure out how to get around it. So, um, but I'll let them sort of answer more specifically. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to add. It was um, basically just I had a commitment and I felt I had to do it whether it was a good end result or not. And um, it ended up working out fine. I mean, I got a little uh, worried because, I mean, we didn't find the artists until um, middle of September and the project was due, it's supposed to be, I think, the middle of October. And so they had they needed time to not only come in and use the materials, but actually then create their pieces. So uh, once I got past that step and I knew more people weren't going to leave, um, I really wasn't worried too much about failure. It was um, it, the, the easy or the hard part I, as for, for me was done because that was the part that I didn't know how to do. Um, I think the, there wasn't any spectacular failure. I just felt constantly on the brink of it, <laughs> um, especially working with new partners being um, brewers. And I don't know if any of you have had the chance to do any programming with brewers, but they're kind of on a different professional level in terms of time frames, <laughs> planning, showing up for meetings, being sober at meetings. <laughs> they gave me beer too, so I have to confess it was, it was both sides. But um, so I was constantly reading, you know, we weren't hearing back from them. The restaurant was sort of like, well, we'll see what happens with, you know, the ball game. I'm like, what do you mean we can cancel this at the last minute because of the ball game? Um, but then, you know, we worked through that, and in the future, we now know that. And so as we work with these partners again, we take into account that we can't expect them to get back to us at a certain date. We just sort of have a window that we'd like to hear from them from and work with it that way. I think for me, it's a really good lesson that when you ask what were dramatic failures, we didn't really have dramatic failures. And this is a project where we said, failure is fine, it's okay, we're gonna learn from it. If you don't fail, you don't learn. And you know, there's a lot of books out there now about you know, learning through failure. You don't learn that much from success, you just start repeating, but the failures are where you really learn. And, and what's so interesting is that we had lots of struggles and lots of fears and a few tears and people really struggling with some deep issues. And yet all of that by reflecting on it and talking about it and saying it was okay to have those feelings and that we were gonna use that material, it actually transformed it into something different that wasn't a failure. And I think the thing that the, the biggest surprise I think for all of us in both in this group but also in the latest group was that we we were our worst enemies. We came up with we came up with the big fears and scenarios, and the people, when they finally saw the results of the work that that people did, were right there with them and enjoying it and celebrating this great work. And and it was it it transformed it into a positive thing in a very kind of I can say that because I'm from California. It was like a very spiritual experience. Like a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the first day was like a funeral. Yes. 
Yes, that's a good question. Dan asked, um, were there other people that were participating in this and did everyone complete their um, experiments? And the answer to both of those questions is yes. Um, there were two other organizations, and the thing I realize now that I <laughs> neglected to mention is that each of um, the organizations was represented by a team. We wanted everyone to have a chance to work collaboratively within their organization. Um, so, um, you know, to keep this down to, you know, a, a reasonable session length, we only included um, a few of the folks, but everybody had a partner except Matt, who was abandoned. Um, <laughs> and there were two other organizations that I um, mentioned briefly earlier when we were just resolving our technical difficulties. Um, I'm trying to page back now. That, um, the, uh, there was an exhibition that involved documents and sort of a discovery process um, uh, at the National Archives. And then the, of course, you remember the Bucks County Historical Society <laughs> and the private parts of sexuality. Six more this time. Six more organizations this time. Yes. Kathy, would you like to talk about that? <laughs> also, while she's figuring out what to say about that, um, I know that <laughs> some of you will have to leave at some point. Um, please do fill out your evaluations before you go and, and you know, leave them on the chair. The one team um, at the National Archives um, worked together and they got their, they did their project, um, but they kind of changed their relationships in, and realized that um, their working relationships weren't what they thought they were going in. So it's kind of similar to Matt's in a way, except that his, his, friend, his uh, colleagues just left, but these other colleagues decided that they had to redefine their... Yeah, right. They had to redefine their relationship and their roles in their institutions, but they did get their, their project out, and it was, it was pretty interesting. Thank you, everybody. Yeah, we'll wrap up the team, but if any of you want to stay in.